I want to talk today about Calvinism. Now, I want to stress up front, this is an in-house debate. I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Um, I had a number of Calvinist professors. I had a number of non-Calvinist professors. We were all thoroughly devoted to Scripture as the authoritative standard by which we were to formulate any doctrines. We hold to apostolic Orthodox Christianity. I stand shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm with many Calvinist brothers and sisters <clears throat> who I love dearly, some of my very best friends. So this isn't a diatribe, this isn't a rant, this isn't an attack on Calvinists. Rather, this is a counter-perspective to that form of theology that arose in the 1500s. And this is offering a different view that you may hear if you only listen to Grudem, Piper, Driscoll, uh, Boyce, any of these popular writers and speakers and teachers they, you're going to hear something different here. So let's jump into it. Um, when it comes to theological pedigree among Protestants, many Christians have been led to believe that the subset of Reformed theology known as Calvinism, and remember, there are people who are Reformed but not Calvinist, and that's important in and of itself that many people don't realize, but the subset of Reformed theology known as Calvinism is seen oftentimes as the absolute pinnacle of intellectual, biblical, theological thought. If one is serious about theology rather than folk religion or, quote, man-made doctrines, then clearly one is a Calvinist, plain and simple. It's the teaching of Scripture and the only faithful expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If one is not a Calvinist, it's only because he or she has not embraced a high view of Scripture or they've not thought through the subject with enough depth or honesty. Non-Calvinists may be saved, but just barely, at least according to some popular proponents of Calvinism. And I stress the some aspect. So what is Calvinism? Well, it's been summed up in various ways over the centuries, but the most popular summarization of its five main tenets, these are also known as, to Calvinists as the doctrines of grace, is the acronym TULIP, like the flower, TULIP. The T stands for total depravity. Total depravity is the idea that because of the sin and fall of humanity in Adam, in other words, what happened in Genesis chapter 3, people are unable to respond on their own to the offer of salvation. As the Westminster Confession, chapter 9, paragraph 3 says, man, by his fall into a state of sin, was wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto. So, total depravity. You can't even respond because of your fallen sinfulness that you inherited from Adam due to the fall. That's the first premise. Second premise, you in Tulip, is for unconditional election. This is the idea that God has chosen before all time the exact and fixed number of people whom he will save, as well as those whom he will allow to be damned, and that his choosing them has absolutely nothing to do with anything in them whatsoever. It's unconditional. So as Westminster Confession, chapter 3 in paragraphs 3 and 4 puts it, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. 
These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. So for all time, some have been elect, and some have been created specifically for being overlooked for salvation. And this is done for the glory of God under the Calvinist system. The third of the five points is L in TULIP, limited atonement. And this is one that some Calvinists actually would say, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist. This would be the point that they would reject if they rejected any of them. But traditionally, limited atonement is the idea that none of Jesus' atoning sacrificial blood was wasted. His death was for those who are elect, not for those who reject the gospel. So, Westminster Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 4 says, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. So justification, salvation, it's only for the elect. It's limited to the elect, not to those who would reject it. Otherwise, the blood of Jesus that was spilled on the cross is ineffectual for those people and is therefore, under a Calvinist mindset, wasted. Uh, the fourth point, the I in TULIP, is for irresistible grace. This is the idea that since God has chosen before all time to redeem the elect, they are unable to not accept the saving grace of the gospel. It's irresistible. God regenerates their will, and thus they invariably choose to respond to his offer through a compatibilist type of freedom. In other words, an idea that says, well, God doesn't make them make the choice. He demonstrates his grace and regenerates their will so that they make the choice. And this is irresistible. It's going to happen. And it flows right from the concept of of unconditional election. If God has unconditionally elected some to be saved, then they will respond favorably to the gospel. And they can't not uh, respond to the gospel favorably. So chapter 10, paragraph 1 of Westminster Confession says, All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed time, effectually, that means actually or making it happen effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them an heart of flesh renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. So irresistible grace, he draws them, he determines that it will happen, he makes it happen, yet they do so freely. This is, this is where the idea of compatibilist free will comes into play, and theologians from the Reformed and Calvinist traditions have wrestled with that for centuries. The last P, excuse me, the last point is P, perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints, and this is different than the so-called concept once saved, always saved, that you may hear in some of our Baptist brothers and sisters um, circles, but 
Perseverance of the saints is slightly different. It's the idea that since the elect have been chosen, called, regenerated, and redeemed by God from all eternity, they will continue in that salvation into eternity. They can't lose or reject the gift of salvation if they've been truly regenerated and redeemed by God. So Westminster chapter 17, paragraph 1 says, They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now, this is, of course, a very cursory overview of the five points of Calvinism. It's just a summary. Hundreds, thousands of pages of theological writing have been devoted to explaining and exploring these five points in much more detail. Entire churches, ministries, publishing houses, colleges, and seminaries exist in order to expound these five interrelated concepts. And they've done quite an effective job of it. As the resurgence of Calvinism among younger Christians within the past couple of decades has demonstrated, this is the sometimes called the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement, or the New Calvinism, uh, but it basically goes back to the ministry and the teaching of people like John Piper at uh, Passion Conferences, youth and college gatherings, um, theologians like Wayne Grudem writing systematic theologies for the people, and, and these groups forming like the Gospel Coalition, uh, which, is a, which is kind of a network of like-minded Calvinist thinkers and, and pastors and teachers. So um, this, is, this is a very strong movement, and it's a movement that actually I have a lot of respect for a number of the people involved in it, so again, this isn't an a antagonistic discussion. This is simply saying I love and respect a lot about many of the people who are involved or who take on the Calvinist theology. I just don't agree with them. <laughs> That's the, the main thing. I just don't agree with them on particular points. Um, R Roger Olson, there's a, a theologian named Roger Olson. He's an Arminian writer, blogger, theologian, professor, and uh, he, he gives a summary in his book, Against Calvinism, how, on how this came to be uh, kind of the default view among many North American evangelicals. Uh, I, I'll read a, a paragraph. This is on page 65 and 66 of his book, Against Calvinism. He says, One reason many young people, and perhaps others, embrace the new Calvinism is because they're convinced it is the only biblically and intellectually serious theology available. It is all too true, as some Calvinists have argued, that many American evangelical churches are almost totally devoid of theology. So curious young people who are convinced that there must be something more to their faith than the folk religion they've been given encounter Calvinism for the first time, usually under the name Reformed Theology. They're often impressed and sometimes swept away by it. In my experience, this is partly under the influence of extremely passionate sermons delivered by scholarly popularizers of Calvinism who preach at enormous youth conferences, and the sermons being podcast for re-listening, as if their theology is the only one that truly honors God. I've found that many of the new Calvinists simply are not aware that there are any viable alternatives to their newfound doctrinal faith. Through reading books by their favorite pastors and teachers, many of them are convinced that all alternatives, and especially the dreaded Arminianism, are man-centered, biblically unsupported, and intellectually weak. As Roger Olson in his book Against Calvinism. Now, there's another version of TULIP 
that the serious student of theology who desires to faithfully interpret the inspired scriptures, but who is not persuaded by the claims of Calvinism about the nature of God, can embrace. This is an alternative to the five points of Calvinism. And I think it better reflects the views of a broader majority of Christians from all three branches of the historic faith. That would be Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant. The tulip of non-Calvinism, which I'm going to propose to you, is an alternative, and it better explains the full teaching of Scripture when all of the passages and all of the concepts taught throughout Genesis to Revelation are taken into account together. I think tulip is not the problem. It's what the letters in the acronym stand for that I think there's a better approach. So let me offer that. And you feel free in the comment section on this podcast or just in discussion with your friends to uh, share what you think, hash it out, uh, do some theological intellectual sparring. That's what Disciple Dojo is all about encouraging. And uh, just consider this. So here's a tulip for those of us that are not Calvinists. T, instead of uh, standing for total depravity, we would say it's total captivity. The biblical concept of sin as a conquering force that has taken humanity captive and enslaves all those who, no matter how hard they try, cannot break free from its grasp, is most clearly seen in Romans 5 through 7, where the freedom provided by Jesus' death and resurrection is expounded, and then the captivity of all those apart from him who remain in Adam long to be free from, but are powerless to overcome. Uh, it's a thread that runs through the entirety of Scripture, this idea of sin as a, as a captor that has enslaved humanity. And so when Paul quotes or alludes to some of the pagan writers of his day, he, he does that as well. It's, a lot of people, I would suggest, miss it because they aren't as familiar as in his other examples. But in Romans chapter 7, he does it. He, he quotes from Ovid, or he at least alludes to Ovid, and other thinkers who have said, like when he says, what a wretched man am I, I desire to do one thing, but I do the other. Well, that was a common refrain among the pagan moralists and ethicists of the day. And Paul uses that in that section of Romans, chapter 7, to present, to paint a portrait of what life is like apart from the Spirit of God, whether Jew or Gentile, for those who are, quote, in Adam. Like, in Adam, meaning part of the fallen Adamic humanity that has become captured by sin, enslaved by sin. So rather than seeing guilt as the thing that's being handed down from generation to generation, in Scripture, uh, I would suggest what you see is that the initial fall of mankind let loose sin as a destructive force in the world that then in turn enslaves and captures everyone who's born into this world. And that's what Jesus came to free us from. Not just the guilt of sin, but the power of sin as an active force. The first time sin's ever mentioned in Genesis, it's described with feral, beastly, um, predatory terminology. Uh, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must overcome it. That, that verb crouching is the verb of like a lion crouching, waiting for its prey, stalking its prey. And we see that unfold throughout Genesis and the rest of Scripture, that, that sin is, is this captive force. And Jesus came to free the captives. That's what his ministry uh, was about. And that's 
again, these are found all through Scripture. I, rather than try to proof text and quote verses, just look at it that way and ask yourself, does that concept of captivity make more sense as, as a starting point for the problem that humanity faces and the struggles that Paul describes? So, T, total captivity. Um, again, unlike the Calvinist T, this understanding of sin and the fall of Adam recognizes the fact that throughout Scripture, people are capable of recognizing the difference between right and wrong and can even long for rescue from their plight as humans who are enslaved to their base sinful desires. However, such rescue can't happen apart from God's promise of deliverance and their appropriation of that deliverance through faith. So it's not, I, I, I politely reject the Calvinist claim that people dead in their sins can't even desire to do the good or desire to be saved. I think that's patently false. I think the pagan ethicist that Paul alludes to desired precisely that, and they lamented over that. In fact, every ethicist in human history outside of God's people has lamented that basic fact of the human condition, longing to be better than we're capable of being. So I think that total captivity makes more sense than total depravity. The U in TULIP, instead of unconditional election, the non-Calvinist U would be union with the elect Messiah. The biblical concept that the elect, keep in mind, the biblical concept is the elect, that term, the elect. It's first and foremost an Old Testament term used to describe Israel as a whole, like the people as a whole, collectively. And specifically, Israel as embodied by its Messiah, or, or in Isaiah's words, it's the servant uh, who stands for the people collectively as a whole, stands in their place. That's why in Isaiah, the servant is sometimes described as the people of Israel and sometimes spoken of as one who would rescue the people of Israel. Well, how can it be? Because it's a corporate solidarity. It's a corporate unity. It's the people stand, the Messiah stands for the people. The people are in the Messiah. And it's the Messiah who is elect who is predestined, and therefore all who are in him are elect, are predestined. It's, it's, this is much uh, a better account of the language in both Testaments rather than uh, any discussion of individuals being predestined for eternal salvation. I mean, there's examples of this can be found, uh, like I mentioned Isaiah's servant. Well, let me list a few. Again, I'm not not doing this to proof text, but just to show you how pervasive this concept is in Scripture so that you can look at these passages in their context and see what it says. I, I'll use the King James just because it uses the phrase elect that this comes from. Other newer translations use a different term, but the English that was around during the Reformation, or excuse me, after the Reformation, uh, this is where this terminology came from. So Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Or Isaiah 45, a couple of chapters over. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Jacob my servant, Israel mine elect. This is Hebrew parallelism, where the first thing reinforces or, or says the uh, second thing says or reinforces the first thing. Jacob, my servant, Israel, mine elect. Elect in the Old Testament was the description given to the people of Israel. Whether one was part of that people or not depended on one voluntarily and continuously living in covenant faith, 
in a covenant relationship with God. If they did so, they were part of the elect, and everything that was said of the elect could rightfully be said of them. This is the corporate view of salvation, not the individualist view of salvation that Calvinism and classic Arminianism uh, argued over during the time of the Reformation. Isaiah 65 says, I'll bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. This, this concept, again, corporate solidarity. So the elect, whenever you say elect, it's talking about the people. It's talking about the entity known as Israel. Israel was a person before Israel was ever a people. Remember that. Israel was the name of the guy who was born with the name Jacob and got his name changed and had 12 sons and they became the 12 tribes. This is all in Genesis. So this is, this is crucial to keep in mind because by the time of the prophets, then the, the identity of the elect had failed as a people. Israel had failed as a people through breaking the covenant. And so God promised to send a servant who was part of Israel who would stand in for Israel, who would embody Israel in himself. And Isaiah talks about this mysterious servant in corporate solidarity terms, sometimes as a group, sometimes as an individual. So in Isaiah 44, it starts, chapter 44 starts with, uh, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says, He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and take the name Israel. So it's this concept Jesus, Israel's Messiah, as the fulfillment and the embodiment in himself of the people as a whole that one could say is the most radically profound concept in all of New Testament theology. This is how the New Testament writers can talk about being, quote, in Christ. You look at, look, open the book of Ephesians, take a highlighter, and just highlight every time you see the phrase, in Christ, in him, in the Lord, in Jesus, your page will be dotted, the whole letter. And that's true in the New Testament as well. That phrase is everywhere. Well, how can you be in a person? Well, only if Jesus is somehow the embodiment of God's elect Israel can people be in him. And guess what? That's exactly what we find throughout the pages of the New Testament. This is how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. So this concept also sheds light on the premier Calvinist passage. Um, those one, the, the passages, rather, that, that many Calvinists are drawn to initially and, and read in, in very specific ways. You know, Ephesians 1, Romans 9, both of these refer uh, entirely to the status of God's people collectively rather than the destinies of individual believers. 
Go back and read Ephesians 1. Read Romans 9. Think of the concept of the elect as describing the corporate people overall rather than individual persons and see which one makes better sense. This is C.K. Barrett uh, puts it this way. He says, election does not take place arbitrarily or fortuitously. It takes place always and only in Christ. They are elect who are in him. They who are elect are in him. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. It's a failure, failure to remember this that causes confusion over Paul's doctrine of election and predestination. This is the way the earliest expositors, the earliest interpreters of these passages who spoke Koine Greek as their native language, read and understood it. In the Old Testament, Hebrew concept of election was always communal rather than individual in focus. So Israel as a whole is the elect whose destiny is assured as inheriting the kingdom of God. But individual Israelites chose whether or not they would belong to this elect community through their acceptance or their rejection of the covenant faith. So again, the you in the non-Calvinist tulip is union with the elect, and that's the Messiah. The L then, rather than limited atonement, Non-Calvinists would say the L is longing by God. The biblical concept is that God extends the offer of salvation to everyone, and the atoning work of Jesus on the cross is the basis by which anyone is able to be saved. God's plans are not thwarted by humans freely rejecting his offer of atoning grace in Christ, nor is Jesus' blood, quote, wasted if many choose not to receive its salvific effects. Both Old and New Testaments reflect a God who longs for humanity to embrace him in faith, even though he knows and recognizes that many choose not to. In addition to the, the passion-filled words of chapters like Ezekiel 18 and Hosea 11, and, and in addition to Jesus' lament over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, look those passages up sometime and read the longing of God's heart in them, Ezekiel 18, Hosea 11, Matthew 23, we also see this longing stated succinctly on numerous occasions. Again, not proof texting. These verses don't settle it. What they do is give you a place to go look and explore in context and see how it reads out. So look at Ezekiel chapter 33, and you'll see in verse 11, God says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? In the New Testament, you know, look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, Tim, uh, Paul says to Timothy, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, Calvinists would read that and say, All doesn't always mean all. And they're technically right that all doesn't always mean all in the Bible. The Bible frequently uses all to mean all of who we're talking about or all of this subset or just in a general hyperbole like all the world came to Joseph to buy grain. But in this passage, in its context, read through it and ask yourself, is this hyperbole or does this flow with what we see throughout Scripture that God's longing is for all of the people he's created who bear his image? 2 Peter 3.9 says, similarly, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
So for the non-Calvinist, God's offer of atoning salvation is longingly given to all people, regardless of their eventual response to it, and is nowhere said to be specifically restricted to the elect, even though it's only those who choose to accept it and enter into the elect community of Messiah who will experience this atonement for themselves. But God does long. The Elwin, the non-Calvinist tulip, is the longing by God for humanity who has turned away from him. And so the I then, the non-Calvinist I in tulip is not irresistible grace, but it's the opposite, the integrity of the offer. The integrity of the offer. This is the biblical concept that God's offer of salvation to everyone is genuine and sincere. It has integrity. It's a real offer. It can either be accepted or rejected by anyone in response. Does this mean then that one's salvation is ultimately, quote, a work, which one can then, quote, boast about, which would run contrary to Ephesians 2's claim that salvation is a gift from God? No, not at all. This is how uh, Roger Olson, he addresses this in his book against Calvinism. He says, being saved is not a matter of doing a work. It's only a matter of not resisting. When a person decides to allow God's grace to save, he or she repents and trusts only and completely in Christ. This is a passive act. It could be compared to a drowning person who decides to relax and let his rescuer save him from drowning. That's page 171 of Olson against Calvinism. Or Austin Fisher, who's an author who uh, embraced the young, restless, and reformed New Calvinism movement and was, was well, you know, full steam ahead in it for a while, and then eventually, through his study of Scripture, came to end up rejecting it. And so he wrote a book called Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed. But he puts it more blunt than Olson does on page 79. He says, What sort of idiot receives a gift and then starts boasting about how he used the muscles in his vocal cords, tongue, and mouth to say, Yes, I will accept this gift. Right? It's... The concept of, this is a uniquely Calvinist concept, that the receiving of the offer of salvation could ever be construed as in any way a work or earning one's salvation. It's crazy. I had some friends give uh, a generous, like that's an understatement, generous donation to the Ministry of Disciple Dojo. And they just gave it to me as a check. And I looked at the check, and I, th- th- it would be unthinkable then for me to go, oh, well, look what I earned. Or, you know, look, what, look, what, look how I worked to receive this money. I mean, it, it, no, it wasn't at all. It was entirely a gift. They entirely and of their own free will gave it to me. So there's no way I could claim yeah, I earned this. You know, no. Now, I had to go deposit the check. I had to take it to the bank and put it in. But no, in, in no way, shape, or form could that ever be construed by any rationally think, rational thinking person as me contributing anything to the gift. Yeah, I had to make a choice. I had to go to the bank. I had to deposit the check. I had to appropriate what had already been given to me by them in order for it to actually be in my bank account. So the concept that, that receiving salvation and saying yes to God's offer and any of that on your own is, is a work, that's just something I literally can't wrap my mind around. I cannot understand that. And, and I think that that's the linchpin that Calvinism uh, stands or falls by, honestly. I think if you 
remove the concept of salvation, receiving salvation as being a work, then the rest of Calvinism becomes an entirely unnecessary edifice that you can then just set aside and say, oh, no, it's just that you don't need all of these machinations and, and theological constructions to account for how you can choose to receive salvation without it being a work. So again, um, one of the most basic assumptions of Calvinism is that responding freely to God's offer of salvation is in some way a work or something that a person can boast about. But such an idea would have been totally foreign to the thinking of the Bible's authors. Acknowledging and responding in faith to God's salvation is nowhere presented as a work in the Hebrew Bible, nor is it depicted as something in which a person could take pride and congratulate oneself about. You know, it's, it's just that that's a totally foreign, much later concept that I can't find anywhere in Scripture. So the you rather than unconditional, I mean the I rather than irresistible grace in non-Calvinist tulip, it's the integrity of the author of the offer, the integrity of the offer. It's actually being offered and you can actually choose to refuse it. And lastly, then that brings us to the P. The Calvinist P is perseverance of the saints. The Arminian or the non-Calvinist P would be uh, present assurance. The, this is the biblical concept that salvation is an ongoing present reality that believers can have assurance of. However, one's not trapped in the kingdom and unable to leave or turn away from grace. The Apostle Paul wrote on more than one occasion about the concern he had that those who had entered into saving covenant faith with the Messiah would not turn away from him. If such a thing was not even theoretically possible, it becomes hard to explain Paul's concern or that of the author of Hebrews in various passages that speak of such turning away. I mean, it'd be hard to understand how Paul could write to the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 5, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Or he says to Timothy, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith among them. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Um, you know, the idea of sh making a shipwreck of your faith, and Paul uses a vivid metaphor from his own travels, he was shipwrecked. You got to be on the ship before it wrecks. And, and there's something he's genuinely worried about being lost uh, among believers, among Timothy, in fact, his protege. Well, what about Paul's confidence in Philippians 1, 4 through 6 that many Calvinists look to? It says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Does that not show that the destiny of each individual who accepts the work of Christ in their heart will ultimately be saved forever? No, actually. This is a translation thing. Philippians 1, 4 through 6, it actually says, In my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work among y'all, this is how we in the South would translate that Greek phrase, en humin. Um, you know, en humin is translated as in you, but that you is plural. And in y'all is what he's saying, among y'all, within y'all, in this community. So he who began a good work 
in you, among y'all, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, the church is not going to fail. The work that was begun among them is going to carry on. But whether each individual person will persevere, well, that's up to them, not shipwrecking their faith. So speaking of the work that Jesus began among the Philippians through Paul's ministry, it says nothing about individual eternal destiny of any particular Philippian Christian who may or may not choose to turn away from the faith and reject God's saving grace in the end. So there you have it. It's a non-Calvinist version of TULIP. Total captivity, union with the elect, the longing of God, the integrity of the offer, and present assurance. Now, of course, at the end of the day, every attempt at systematizing and distilling the entire teaching of Scripture into a theological formula will fall short somewhere. I mean, God did not see fit to give his people an acronym or bullet points or any other such outline version of theology. He gave us the full revelation of himself in Jesus, our Messiah, and a faithful record of his dealings with his people in the pages of Scripture. So while this uh, entire discussion, this non-Calvinist tulip, is my own attempt at offering an alternative summary to what we find taught in Scripture about the doctrines which Calvinism teaches, it's in no way meant to be exhaustive or authoritative. I'm just offering for those who have been taught that Calvinism's tulip is the only faithful biblical evangelical form of theology, I'm offering this as an alternative. It's simply not. That claim is simply incorrect. The majority of Christians in the history of the world, and even today around the world, are not Calvinists. So that doesn't mean Calvinism's wrong. It doesn't mean it's right. It just means that it is one of the views one of the theological mindsets, one of the interpretive approaches that Christians are free to take. But it's not the only kid on the block. Uh, Jerry Walls, he's a theologian that's, that's written about it and spoken about it as well, but he's observed that no one, uh, no one can claim a theology that's free from mystery. We just choose... I believe genuinely, without being made to do so by God, which set of mysteries we can best live with. So what Wall means by that, or what he says is, this is um, in Austin Fisher's book, Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed, on page 76, he, he cites Jerry Wall as saying, notice, both Calvinist and free will theologians ultimately arrive at a point where further explanations are impossible. Both reach the limit of finally inexplicable choice. The free will theologian cannot fully explain why some choose Christ while others don't. The Calvinist cannot tell us why or on what basis God chooses some for salvation and passes others by. So, at the end, we're going to be left with mystery. And no theological system is free from it. But why would we ever expect that any summary of the infinite God of the universe and the depth and complexity of human nature would ever be free of mystery. Calvinism typically, not always, but typically appeals to people who, who want airtight answers, who want logical consistency, and who, who are very uh, detail-minded. Of course, it's a broad generalization, but it's still a generalization. I mean, generally, you will find this. The people who are most persuaded by it typically tend to be that way in many respects. Not everybody, of course. There are definitely exceptions. But Calvinism does offer a logically coherent 
system, if you buy into, if you accept the starting premises, such as saying yes to salvation is an actual work, you know, if you buy into that, if you accept that, then everything that Calvinist teaches follows pretty logically. There's no contradiction in it. But the starting assumptions are what you need to question, and they're what I question. Um, they come from a later time period than when Scripture itself was written. So I know you'll hear passionate Calvinist preachers teach that Calvinism is just simply Bible interpretation. I mean, I understand that's what they think. Otherwise, they wouldn't believe it. So I recognize that. I just disagree with it. I don't think Calvinism is the way of interpreting Scripture. I think Calvin built on the work of earlier thinkers like Augustine in the debates he had with Pelagius about the role of human choice and, and salvation being a gift. And, and I think Augustine uh, took it one way and ran with it to combat Pelagius and ended up running in the other direction uh, to an equally unhealthy degree. And that's what Calvin and, and others built upon. But I don't think it's necessary. And at the end of the day, that's, that's the position that I would like to suggest and, and offer to you guys to think about. I don't think Calvinism is evil. I just think it's unnecessary. I think that the starting premises are not necessarily correct. So, again, just think it through. Work through it. Spar with it a little bit. Roll with it some. That's what Disciple Dojo is all about. Introducing ideas for you to wrestle with. You don't have to agree to be a brother or sister in Christ. You don't have to agree to be part of the elect. It's not a matter of salvation. But it is a matter worth consideration um, because there are people who simply can't accept the Calvinist depiction of God. And they need to know that, well, you don't have to in order to accept God. They're not the same thing necessarily. So take that, do what you want with it. But uh, we got to go. Um, I'll see you next time on Disciple Dojo Discussions. Take care, everyone.